Good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead Church, and uh, Merry Christmas. I, I hope you enjoyed the kids. They were pretty awesome. Huh? Cute? Fun? Yes? You're like much better than you, Steve. I know. Um, yeah, we got a lot of kids, and, uh, and I want to give a shout out to everyone who worked so hard to kind of pull that off this morning. That is a lot of work to corral that many kids and try to get them that close to being on the same page. And so um, huge shout out to, uh, to everyone back there. Um, I want to let you know as well, just kind of remind you, we are continuing to recruit for Trailhead Kids. It's one of the biggest ministries <clears throat> we have. Excuse me. And, um, and as a result, we need a lot of people involved. And not everyone's teaching the kids. There's lots of ways to be involved. So um, if you're looking for a way to plug in, that's a great way to do it. We've got a lot of kids. We've got a lot more coming. Um, I think we have like 20 babies due in the next nine months or something like that. Um, it's pretty crazy, pretty awesome. <clears throat> and so we encourage you to get involved. Uh, we have some folks walking around this morning with volunteer t-shirts on. Trailhead Kids volunteer t-shirts. If you want to know anything about Trailhead Kids, ask them. They are experts. They'll be more than happy to help you get the information you need, or you can just visit visit our connection point. All right. This morning, we are continuing our series in the Gospel of John. So go ahead and grab your Bibles, and uh, let's open up to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, go ahead and grab one off the floor around you. We have them distributed throughout the space, and um, go ahead and grab one. And in our Bibles, we're going to page 886. Uh, to John chapter 1. Um, we are in a series called The True Light. It's an Advent series. Advent is that period uh, about five weeks before Christmas that the church has set aside. Um, it's not, you know, something that we find in the Bible. It's just a tradition in the church that, that we uh, observe because it helps prepare our hearts uh, to, to really enter into um, the wonder and the beauty of this season, to prepare our hearts uh, to really worship God. Um, and so that's our goal this morning. So we're going to John chapter 1. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 13 together, starting in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, those who believed in his name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, the Word of the Lord. Uh, Advent is um, a season of preparation, and and, um, as we are seeing in um, the Gospel of John, there's a tension in this season. There's a tension in the preparation. Um, It is... um, a season in which uh, light breaks into darkness, in which joy breaks into sorrow, in which um, God breaks into a broken world. And, and as a result, when you read through John, what he's exploring here really is attention. Um, and, and to enter into the season, we're going to have to enter into that, that tension. And, and one of the ways the church typically uh, has, has entered into that has been through the lighting of candles. 
Um, there, are, there are lots of liturgies connected with Advent, and lighting candles is, is one of those. Uh, and it's a fitting symbol because, obviously, um, the fire, the candle, uh, is, is light. And it's one of the prominent images running through John 1, this idea that the light has broken in, right? That, that, that God is light, and the light was a life of men, right? And so when we think about God um, being light, it's a fitting example of, of, in a sense, what Advent is, because we're in darkness longing for the light. You guys ever been trapped in a really dark place? You ever been in, in um, you know, uh, a t- uh, you know, spelunking? You ever been there? Uh, crawling through a tunnel? Some of you are like, not a chance, right? Um, maybe a super long tunnel, maybe just a super long night. You know what I'm saying? Like where you were just sick or whatever, you couldn't sleep and you're yearning for the breaking of the day. You're yearning for some kind of light, especially if you're in a place that is just pitch black and you don't know which way is which and you're, you're searching the darkness looking for light. That's a, that's a really good image of what Advent is. Advent is the season in which we are um, given a glimpse of light and set yearning for more. Right? And, and so there is both joy and sorrow. There is both an increase of desire, but in that increase of desire, an increase of aware, uh, awareness of how much better what's coming is than what is. Um, and, and, and when we look at our, our chapter one, we kind of see the entire world in this image, this idea that the entire world is trapped in darkness, yearning for light, um, fearful people yearning for something that they can't provide for themselves. It's a place of both hope and fear, sorrow and joy. It's an age of tension. And, uh, and our passage continues to push us into that tension this morning. Um, now, when we look into this passage, there are three amazing things I want us to take a look at um, that I believe are going to help prepare our hearts uh, for the Advent series season, uh, prepare our hearts to really enter into Christmas. Um, and, uh, and so we're going to unpack those, those three things this morning. Okay, uh, we're going to be looking at verses um, nine through thirteen. We looked at the previous two sections in the last two weeks, uh, but let's start in verse nine. It says, "The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world." All right, the first amazing thing, but I think we really need to pause and remind ourselves how amazing it is, is that uh, God didn't leave us in the darkness. We're the ones that turned off the light. Right? When we look at the biblical story, you get to Genesis chapter 3. We're the ones that rejected God. We're the ones that said to God, we, we don't want your love. We don't want your presence. We don't want your authority. We're not going to center ourselves on your glory. We're going to center ourselves on our own. We're not going to let you dictate to us what our life is about. We're going to dictate to ourselves. We're not going to tune our hearts to your glory. We're going to tune our hearts to our own and chase and pers- uh, pursue our, our own ends. God in His grace chose not to leave us in that state of rebellion. God is pictured in this passage really as the universal sun around which we were all designed to orbit. We were designed by God to to find our center in His glory and to find our joy and purpose in His light. We chose to reject that. And instead of walking away from us, instead of rejecting us, He chose to break into our darkness that we might be delivered. Now, to think a little bit about the metaphor of light, because this, this passage is highly symbolic, highly metaphorical. And, and, and so when he says God is light, he's saying much more than simply that he's bright, right? He's saying something 
essential about his, his nature, right? Light is a powerful metaphor of the nature and the presence of God. So if we think about it, the idea is that we're going to pause. John, when he wrote this, knew that we'd have to pause and think about it. Uh, we know that light's essential for, for specific things, right? We need light for life, right? In fact, John said that earlier up in, in verse 3, right? The, the God is light, and that light is the life of men, right? No life can exist without light, right? We need light um, in order to, to live, Beyond that, we know metaphorically that light is symbolic of our ability um, to make wise decisions, right? An enlightened mind, right? If you're in your house and you have toddlers and your house is strewn with Legos and you have to get to the bathroom, you need light, right? (laughs) Otherwise, you are in for hell, right? You're going to be tortured uh, as you try to make your way across the room, and you may never even make it to the bathroom, right? Which gets even worse. And so uh, when we're talking about God being light. We're talking about Him giving us the wisdom to be able to see life in its proper um, dimensions, to be able to see what is wise and what isn't, to be able to discern what is good and what isn't, to, to make choices not based on what we think is going to ultimately bring us happiness, but the God who designed it all, being able to say, this is what's going to ultimately bring you greatest fulfillment, right? So when we talk about God being light, we're talking about His presence being wisdom to our souls, enabling us to move into um, the blessed life, the life that we were designed to have. Think about it this way. Light is also the, the, the revealer and the expresser of beauty. If we didn't have light, how would you even understand beauty, right? Light reveals to us the, the colors and the textures of creation. And, 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 and it's not just in a, a glorious sunset or a glorious sunrise. Um, it's, it's in the colors of, of the fall leaves. It's in the, the shades of, of color in a loved one's eyes. It's, it's in the textures of, of life itself, right? Without light, we would become completely insensitive to the presence of beauty. We can keep going, Light is life and strength and wisdom and beauty. We were created to orbit around life, light. Light is not only essential um, for life, but essential for the richness of life. And so when we talk about God being light and that that light, according to verse 9, which is enlightening everyone. There's that sense in which there's this common grace of light spilling out to all creation was coming into the world. We're talking about God, the true center of all that is life-giving and wise and beautiful, breaking into his creation. And this God who is perfect light and perfect love and perfect holiness was coming into the world. He would not allow his presence to be rejected, nor would he allow his life-giving presence to be extinguished. He would not allow us to stay in our suffering or in our darkness. He would break in. Um, now, of course, we're talking about, we're talking about the light coming into the world that's metaphorical for the incarnation when, when God took on flesh. When God broke into our world, not simply um, in a transcendent sense, but in a very imminent sense, God in the flesh. When God became one of us, and in a sense was born behind enemy lines, not to defeat the enemy, but to deliver the enemy, right? It says that, that the light was coming into the world 
Now, when John talks about the world, he's talking about much more than just this globe. He's talking about the word cosmos means the ordered system of this world. He's talking, in a sense, about our culture, our humanness, how we define and exist as a people. And all the way through John, whenever he uses the word world, the the world is hostile toward God. The system that we've created is hostile toward God. Why? Because we've rebelled against God. We've rejected the glory and the authority of God. We have chosen instead to center ourselves on our own glory, to tune our hearts to to our own kingdoms, to to seek and pursue our own ends. And the systems that we've developed are ultimately designed to find what only God can give in places that God isn't. Right? To look to creation to give us ultimate purpose. To look to, to relationships to give us an experience of transcendent love. To, to look to our own glory to give us a sense of, of purpose and meaning and relevance. So our systems are designed ultimately um, to replace God. So when it says that he was breaking into the world, in a sense, it's a way of saying that he was, he was coming in and being born behind enemy lines. It's not that God hated the world. God loved the world. It's that the world hated God. And he was coming in as a messenger of love, being born as a human so that he could redeem humanity. So the first amazing thing that I think it's good for us to dwell on and remember is that we have a God who, while exists, he exists in transcendent light. He is the essence of everything we desire. He is the one around whom we were designed to revolve, and, and uh, it is in the reflection of His glory that we find our truest purpose, our truest joy, our truest life. Even though we rejected Him, He didn't reject us. Even though we create systems to uh, uh, exclude Him and replace Him, uh, He is a humble God who is willing to set aside the experience of His glory to take on flesh and become one of us. The second amazing thing that we see is that while (laughs) eternal transcendent light humbled himself to become one of us, we neither knew him nor accepted him, right? Take a look at verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. So God broke into our darkness. The one who made the world broke into the world ultimately to turn on the light, to to set all things right, to heal what was broken, to set straight what had been bent. And yet when he arrived, he was not welcomed. He was unknown and rejected. It is ironic as you think about it, you guys. God created mankind in his own image. Humanity is unique in all of creation. Like all of creation reflects the beauty and the creativity of God. Right? We see in the beauty of the stars. We see in the beauty of the seasons. We see in the beauty of, of, of hidden creatures. Right, You go down to the bottom of the sea and you find these phosphorescent fishes. We find this incredible beauty just hidden away in all of creation. And that reflects back to us the beauty of God. But humanity is unique in the sense that we were created out of all creation in the image of God. And yet when the God who created us in His image broke into our world, we didn't recognize Him. He saw within us the broken, ruined image of himself, but we saw in him a stranger. The world did not know him. And as a result, they rejected him. In fact, in verse 11, we see that rejection driven home. In verse 11, he came to his own, 
and his own people did not receive him. Right? That, that phrase, he came to his own, is, is a, uh, a Greek uh, phrase that can mean basically coming home. Right? He came home to his own people, to his own family, to his own covenant people. Right? In the Old Testament, the Jewish people were, were chosen to be God's covenant people. They had a unique relationship with God. They, they were His people, and He was their God. And Jesus was born historically, genetically a Jew, right? He was a descendant of, of, of uh, Abraham and Jacob and, and, and David, right? He was born as a Jew into a, a culture of a Jewish people who had been shaped by God's revelation and God's commitment and relationship with them, and yet His own people did not receive him. He came home and they didn't say, welcome home. I think what we see here really when we take a look is this idea that God had to break into a world. And whether you're religious or irreligious, you're ultimately still a stranger to the creator, the source of life and the giver of light, right? Religion is um, often one of the deadliest enemies of the human soul because ultimately religion is our way of working our way to God. Religion is our way of fixing ourselves. Religion is our way of of improving ourselves. It is, in a sense, our self-salvation project. We know we're broken. We know we need something. And so we reach out to church in this attempt to somehow improve ourselves and fix ourselves. And sadly, even God's people who had actually received divine revelation from God and had a unique relationship with God reverted to religion instead of pushing into relationship. And as a result, their religion alienated them from the very God they claimed to worship. Their self-salvation project made God's Savior a stranger to them because they weren't there to be fixed by God. They were there to fix themselves for God. They were improving themselves, working on themselves, trying to make up for their own deficiencies and pay their own debts. And when God showed up to do that for them, they didn't want it. You guys, sometimes when, when someone turns on the light, it's a rather unpleasant experience, isn't it? Yes? Yes. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Absolutely true, right? Uh, if you're married and one of you has to get up early to go to work, how annoying is it when they get up at, at 4.30 in the morning and they just turn on all the lights, right? It's like, seriously, you couldn't walk in the dark from the, the bed to the bathroom, right? You couldn't turn on the light in the bathroom and close the door halfway, right? Why do you have to turn on all the lights in the house, right? It's annoying when someone turns on the lights when we don't want to wake up. Here's the thing, you guys. There are many times that we are spiritually asleep and we don't want to be woken up. We want to live in our dream worlds of comfort and ease. Often when things are going incredibly well in our lives, we are least open to the presence of God. Because God comes in with demands. God comes in with unsettling presence. When our kingdoms are all in order, we don't have room for the kingdom of God. When our glory seems sufficient, the glory of God becomes competitive with ours. We would rather be asleep in our comfort and our ease. 
Sometimes it's not the sleep that we're trying to protect, but our shame. Sometimes there are areas in our lives that we don't want the light to come into, honestly. The light becomes intrusive, right? We live Photoshopped lives, right? Putting our best face forward. We, we love to present ourselves at all times, and, and when we do, we carefully arrange the lights around us so that our best features are highlighted and our shameful ones are hidden. And we try to not even look at ourselves honestly. And so we arrange the light in ways that, that both flatter and hide, right? The light can be incredibly intrusive. Uh, sometimes the light shows us things we don't want to see. Things that not only are we trying to hide from others, we're trying to hide from ourselves. When a light gets turned on and it shows us our heart with its truest motives and we see that our best behavior was motivated by sinful motives, when we recognize that the things that we took the most glory in are in fact our shame, that's a devastating moment. And for religious people, it's unacceptable. Because if I take pride in my ability to work my way to God and then you show me that my best efforts don't measure up I'm completely devastated, and my investment was waste. And sometimes I would rather turn off the light than see the truth. The light comes in, and it's humbling because it shows us things. Sometimes it's a true light, when it's a bright light, right? When, it's, when, it, when it has its way of, of, see, when God's light shows up, man, he has a way of, of working that light into all the dark crevices of our soul. All the doors we want to keep closed, all the things we don't want to look at. He has a way of showing us angles of our own motives and behaviors that are unsettling and disruptive. Right? And so what ends up happening is whether you're religious or irreligious, the presence of Jesus becomes a threat. Right? For the irreligious, he, he disrupts their comfort, worry, comfort-driven, worry-free life. He, he disrupts their success and the story they're telling of themselves that, that ultimately they can save themselves through their effort or through their, their, their due diligence or through their talent or their intelligence. He comes in and he disrupts the religious world by showing them that your best religious efforts don't make you better. That no matter how much you can stop doing bad over here, it doesn't change the sinful motives of your heart over here. When the light is turned on, it's an incredibly disruptive force. And it is humbling and it is hard. And if we refuse humility, it will make us resentful. And it will make us defensive. And it will even make us angry. That's, of course, exactly what happened in the life of Jesus. Jesus showed up and he was the light of the world, made flesh, and he showed up and he just loved people. And he had a way of speaking truth that was both disruptive and uncomfortable but it was always done in love and it was always done with the invitation of grace. And what happened to him? The irreligious people thought he was a fool. The religious people thought he was a threat and he was crucified because they would rather extinguish the light than come to the truth. When that uncomfortable confrontation between what they wanted to keep hidden was exposed by the light of God, instead of bringing that to God in honesty and integrity, they'd rather turn off the light. They'd rather murder the creator of life, the God 
who created the world in an effort to protect their own kingdom then submit themselves to the kingdom that humbled them even though it would free them. It's an amazing thing. Which leads us to the third amazing thing. That God wasn't surprised by this. Verse 11 and into verse 12. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. He was rejected. (laughs) He was rejected, but he refused to remain unreceived. In the same way mankind rejected God at the beginning of the story, mankind once again rejects God. But even that rejection is part of a greater plan to redeem and restore. God will work through the rejection of men to work out the redemption of those same men. Because when Jesus was crucified, he didn't just die. He became a sacrifice. He became, as John the Baptist we looked at last week proclaimed, he became the Lamb of God, the sacrificial Lamb on whom the sin of the world was placed. He died not because he deserved it, but because we did. He lived the life we should have lived, and he died the death we deserved to die, and he rose again to invite us into his resurrection, having paid for our sin and satisfied God in regards to our guilt. This light that broke into the world, this light that became flesh, that he might live and die and rise again, this is the one who did it so that we might receive him, that we might believe in his name, that we might have the right to become children of God. So the phrasing here is interesting and important. Because he came to his own and they did not receive him, they didn't give him the welcome home, he in turn said, okay, I'm going to create a new family. And that family is going to made up, be made up of everyone who does receive me, everyone who gives me the welcome home. Well, how do you give him the welcome home? You believe in his name, which is an interesting phrase for us today. We don't, we don't talk like that a lot. It was, it was fairly common um, at this period of time when this was written in the Greek world. Um, it was a phrase that meant to trust deeply in. And we still do it today. We still experience this in different ways and in different measures today. Uh, I'll give you an example. Um, there was a young man. Uh, uh, my friend was telling me about, I don't know his name, I'm going to call him Mark so that we can follow the story. Um, And Mark became a believer. And after Mark became a believer in Jesus, he started reading his Bible and studying and getting incredibly excited uh, about his study. And he discovered the writings of a guy named uh, John Piper. Uh, Some of you have heard of John Piper. John Piper is a, a, a pastor who's also a theologian. He has written many, many books. Um, and I highly respect him. Uh, I have benefited from much of what he's written. I don't agree with everything he says, um, but I have definitely benefited from much that he has written, and I'm deeply indebted uh, to him uh, as, a, as a really a current theologian. Well, this young guy, Mark, man, he just fell in love with Piper. Like, he read everything Piper had ever written. He had an entire bookshelf dedicated to John Piper books. He could quote Piper. Uh, his language was suddenly filled with Piperisms, right? Delighting in the delight of God, being delighted in by the delightful God, right? He just was constantly, um, like, almost eating and breathing this stuff. And, um, and his friend decided to take him to a conference where John Piper was speaking. And so they went to this conference, and they're sitting there. And, and this guy, Mark, man, he's just sitting there. I'm like, I'm like 50 yards from John Piper, right? Just just in awe, Piper's up there, uh, just 
chewing on the word because that's what he does. He's unpacking the text. And, and after this whole thing's done, man, he is just drunk on Piper and they're in the elevator heading on the way up from the conference to their room. And, and as they're standing there, this little man steps into the elevator to go up with him. It was John Piper um, also going to the elevator to go up to his room because he's human. And, um, and so he climbs on. Mark is just in awe. doesn't know what to say. His, his friend um, is like, well, hey, Dr. Piper. Thank you for today, man. We really appreciate it. I'd like to introduce you to Mark. He invited you into his heart about a year ago. Um, uh, Piper wasn't amused, but I think that's because John Piper doesn't have much of a sense of humor. He's a beautiful man, highly intelligent. Humor's not his strong point. Um, and so it just created this really awkward space in the elevator as Mark was incredibly uncomfortable and Piper stared at them. Um, but here's the thing, this is where it's kind of going is, is in a sense, this is what I'm talking about, right? Mark loved John Piper. Mark trusted John Piper. Mark was a devotee of John Piper. Mark, Mark believed in the name of John Piper. Now, not salvifically, he wasn't looking to John Piper to save his soul. He wasn't looking to John Piper to make him right with God, but, but he had this, this devotion, this response to the name, to the character and the person that led him to submit, right? John Piper in that moment could have told him to do anything and he would have done it. He could have asked of him anything and he, he would have complied. Why? Because, because he trusted the character and he was willing to submit himself to the word because there was a response, a heart response of faith that said, I trust your character and I trust your word. Right? And we know this is beyond just a religious experience, right? I've seen athletic guys like become devotees of their coaches, right? Because they really were, they, they, they knew that they could be better, but, but in order to get better, they wanted to submit themselves to this guy that they, that they really just look up to and they believed in the name of their coach. And whatever their coach told them to do and however their coach drove them, they submitted themselves to it. I've seen cooks do this with, with chefs, right? I've seen it's, it's, it happens naturally as we come to trust in someone's character and their word. To believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ means, means to be persuaded of his character, that he is who he said he is, right? That he is God in the flesh, driven by love, extending grace, and that he's done what he said he's done, right? That he has gone to the cross, that he has died in my place, that he was my substitute in judgment, that he took all of my guilt, all of my shame, and died in my place so that when he rose again, I might stand with him. To believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ means to respond not simply with an intellectual assent, but with a devotion. a submission, a love that says, I trust you. I'll follow you. And if you show me uncomfortable things about me, if your light comes in and shows me things that terrify me about me, I'm going to push that much more deeply into grace. I'm going to stop leaning on my own self-salvation projects. I'm going to stop proving myself and stop trying to earn people's favor and stop trying to, to, to make myself good enough to earn my glory, to build my kingdom. I'm going to rest in you because it's not about what I do for you. It's about what you've done for me. And I will rest in that. 
See, when we receive Christ, it means we come to that place where we trust and believe the gospel. And in believing, we are given the right to become children of God. It's interesting that John uses that phrase, the right to become children of God. Because when we believe, it is, in a sense, a legal situation in which we are adopted into the family of God. And we now have rights in association with that adoption. Right? I come now as a believer in Christ, not to a throne of judgment, but a throne of grace. And a throne of grace is the extension of God's goodwill and love, not based on my ability to earn it, but based on Christ's. And since Christ's work was eternally effective in both scope and duration, I am eternally accepted. I come into the presence of God, and I'm always coming to welcome open arms. I come into the presence of God, and I'm always coming to the invitation of grace. Because Christ has done for me what I could not do for myself. And he has fully paid a debt I could never pay on my own. And while his light shows me uncomfortable, difficult things about myself, it also shows me an invitation to change, to be different, to be freed. So that once again, I can orbit around his glory instead of my own. Once again, I can live for his kingdom instead of building my own. Once again, I can live feasting on the eternal love of God instead of trying to have my, my need for love satisfied in things that can't satisfy it, from human relationships to, to hobbies and pursuits to sinful indulgences. What's ironic is that when we give Jesus the welcome home, we're the ones welcomed home. God came to a world, both religious and irreligious, knowing he'd be rejected, but working his will through that rejection to offer an invitation that all who would receive him, those who would believe in his name, might become children of God. Now John goes on and he's going to pull back the curtain a little bit of how this works in verse 13. All right, he gave them the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Those three phrases reveal to us, in a sense, um, how helpless we are to pursue this gift on our own, right? You're born, when you're born into the family of God, you're, you're born not of blood. Literally, it's plural, bloods. And it's talking about your historical, physical lineage, right? Just because you were, he's speaking to the Jews, just because you were born in the Jewish line doesn't mean you're part of the family of God. Just because you have this rich heritage by which you can track yourself all the way back to the patriarchs, the ones who actually entered into the original covenants with God, does not mean that you're in the family. You're not born into the family of God because you're born with a specific lineage. You are not born into the family of God because you're born into a religious family or, or a church or, or because you have a Christian heritage or because your grandfather and father were pastors. You are not born into the family of God until you receive the gift by believing in the name. Nor are you born of the will of the flesh, which is speaking of, of human desire. You are not born into the family of God just because you want it, right? You're, the, the source of, of your birth was not your desire to be born. It wasn't that you wanted it. In fact, he goes on, he says, nor by the will of man. It wasn't because you chose it. The source of, of your responding and believing 
was not your desire or your will or your heritage. What was it from? You were born of God. Every child has to be born, right? In John chapter 3, um, Jesus has an encounter with Nicodemus, which ironically and, and meaningfully is in the middle of the night. Nicodemus was a religious leader, and he was coming to Jesus in the middle of the night because, again, darkness um, covers things that are shameful, and he was afraid that he would be exposed in front of other, other religious leaders as somebody who had a genuine interest in Jesus, so he came at night. Jesus was humble enough to actually meet him and speak with him. Um, and in that course of that conversation, Nicodemus is coming with not a lot of questions, uh, more, more just general curiosity. And Jesus basically confronts him and says, look, man, if you want to enter into the kingdom of God, you need to be born again. And Nicodemus is, is understandably confused. He's like, what are you talking about? Like, what am I supposed to re-enter my mother's womb? I mean, that's gross and impossible, right? I can't do that thing. And Jesus is like, look, that's not what I'm talking about. You need to be born of the water and of the Spirit. In other words, you need to be born physically of the water, and you need to be born again spiritually. God needs to do a work in you for you to be born. Being born again is a miracle by which God makes us alive once again to His presence. God once again reunites us in relationship to His glory, to, to, to who He is. Born again is a, a, a phrase that's used and abused a lot in our culture, really in crazy ways. Um, I wasn't raised in a Christian environment, and, and so this was a little bit foreign to me. After I became a believer, um, I went to work in a Christian school, and I remember giving a family a tour of the school, and I was showing them the classrooms and talking about the curriculum and, and, and the goals and the aims and talking about our teachers and, and our facilities and all those sorts of things. And we get to the end of the tour, and I'm getting to walk them out, and I'm like, well, I hope you guys answer, I hope I answered all your questions. And they're like, you know, we just have one more question. I'm like, what, what's that? And they're like, just how born again are you guys? I mean, I was really dumbfounded in a sense because I'm like, I don't, I don't understand what you mean. That's like looking at somebody and saying, just how born are you, right? It's really unpleasant if you're not fully born. It doesn't work, right? That's not how life was designed to be. You're either born or you're not. See, listen, guys, being born again has nothing to do with your political affiliation. Being born again has nothing to do with the subculture in which you reside, whether or not you drink or smoke or dance. But that's what we've done with the phrase. When people say, oh, I'm a born-again Christian, a lot of times what that means is I affiliate with this specific political party and, and I do these things and I don't do these things and, and this is how I define my life. And, and that, is, that is religion, once again, robbing the text of its genuine meaning and putting our performance in the place of God's. Being born again is not something we do for God. It is something God does for us. It's not about us performing for God. It's God doing a miracle in our souls we couldn't do for ourselves, whereby He makes us once again alive and united with the source of life. So when the text says that you were born, it's talking about something that was done to you, right? Seriously, every time you guys celebrate your birthday, why are you celebrating? What did you do? I worked really hard, man. I fought and I finally emerged from the darkness to the light. No, you did not. You were like asleep, man. Your mom did all the work. That's why, like, you, you know, when you celebrate your birthday, that should, every birthday should be Mother's Day. Amen? Right? Moms, you did the work. 
You suffered the pain, right? They get the benefit. When it says that we're born of God, it doesn't mean that we've done the work for God. It means God's done the work for us. That we might be born into a family we could never claim on our own. When we believe in Jesus, when we receive him, welcome him home in a sense, which is our being welcomed home by simply believing in the name, trusting in the character, believing that he is who he says he is and he's done what he says he's done. When we believe in Jesus, we are made alive, regenerate, born again. The Spirit of God once again unites us with his spirit because the offense of our sin has been removed by Christ. We are now covered in the righteousness of Christ and once again invited into the holy, beautiful presence of God to be united and be able to be fed by the life, the light, the presence of God. So let's talk about an application here. What do we do with this? How does this help us prepare our hearts for Christmas and for Advent? Well, first, um, I think we need to see, and I want to drive home, there's really only one way to receive Jesus. And it's not by going to church, and it's not by becoming more religious, and it's not by fixing the things that you do wrong or making yourself more religious or more moral. That's religion. That's your self-salvation project. And that is an exercise in futility. The way we receive is to believe. We trust in what he's done for us, not what we've done for him. We rest in his accomplishments for us, not our accomplishments for him. We recognize that we are first loved, and because we are loved, we can love in return. And that even our faith is a gift from God, whereby he takes one who is dead and gives him the gift of life. Some of you might be asking, well, how do I know? If I'm an unbeliever, how do I know if God has chosen me? It sounds like God comes in and breaks in and he takes a corpse and he breathes life into the corpse and the corpse comes back to life. And that is a very true picture of what happens. Scripture says you are dead in your trespasses and sins. Corpses can't do a whole lot to fix themselves. You can put makeup on it, but you can't make it come to life. Only God can do that, right? So, so how do I know if I'm one of the, the chosen ones of God? How do I know if, if I am supposed to be made alive? <laughs> Believe. The invitation to receive is in front of you. And it is as simple as coming and saying, I believe in the name. I trust the work. I may not even fully understand what that means. I may not be fully cognizant of what that commits me to. I have no idea. But I receive the gift that's been extended to me by God, whereby in his grace he has worked even through my rejection to work for my salvation. I will be loved. And in being loved, I will learn to love in return. I will believe. How do you know if he's chosen you to choose him? You receive him. You believe. You trust in his work for you instead of your work for him. You abandon your self-salvation projects and instead let God be your Savior. second thing I want to focus on, believers, is this. As we move into the Christmas season, as we move into this time of chaos and family and movement, I want to exhort you, don't go to sleep. Don't, don't ignore the light that has broken in. Here's the thing. If your life is filled with joy and blessing in this season, full of family and everything's going good, don't allow your heart to get drunk on that prosperity. 
of family and food, material wealth, to the point that you go through the motions of honoring the name of Jesus, but never actually worship the breaking in of the light. You go through the motions, you go to church, you set up the tree, you say the right things, but your heart remains distant and untouched. Don't don't sleepwalk. Allow the amazing reality of what's occurred to once again waken your soul to awe and transcendent worship. Don't allow your heart to set its hope on earthly things, looking to family, looking to material wealth, looking to to experiences to give you your deepest, most satisfying rewards because you will not only be disappointed, but you'll miss the greater feast. Don't let your consumption of joy silence your longing. Listen to me. Don't let your consumption of joy silence your longing. The king has come, but the kingdom has not yet been fully realized. And as a result, this is a time for joy, but it's also a time for longing because everything we consume here is a shadow of the reality of what's to come. Our our experience of love is real, but it's a shadow of the more real, more full love to be experienced once we are delivered into the kingdom. This is a time of both celebration and yearning. And if you turn your heart off to the yearning, you will shut your heart off to the joy. You will truncate your ability to experience the joy if you refuse to enter into the yearning for the greater joy. I know there's another group here, and I want to speak to you as well. If your holidays are filled with difficulty, if this is a time of loneliness and isolation, broken families, betrayal, emotional pain, don't numb your heart. Don't turn off your desires. So here's the thing. Don't let your pain silence your hope. Don't let your pain silence your hope. It's a season in which if what you see mainly is the brokenness, you need to remind yourself that there is a God who's broken into this broken world to fix it. There is a light that is broken in to bring light into the darkness. And there are seasons in which most of what you see will be dark, but that doesn't change the fact that light is breaking in. And it's in those moments we need to yearn most feverishly and focus most strongly on the light that is breaking in to continue to give our hearts energy and joy and purpose in the midst of suffering. The true spirit of Advent is a spirit of joy and sorrow, of yearning and celebration. We need to embrace both. The light is breaking into our darkness. So believer, if we're going to prepare our hearts to celebrate, we need to reawaken our hearts to both the sorrow and the joy of the season. We need to stop self-medicating. We need to stop distracting ourselves. We need to stop driving ourselves with an overfilled schedule so that we can't think, we can't focus, we can't sit. We need to stop putting ourselves to sleep with shopping and food and distraction. With frenzy and activity, we need to learn to pause. And to consider and to allow our souls to reawaken to the beauty of the God who has pursued us and sacrificed so much to win us. 
Sometimes all you can see is the dark world, but it's in that moment you need to look up and see the light breaking on the horizon. And allow it to once again fill you with joy and longing. The king has come. The kingdom is coming. Let's remind ourselves of where we are in the broader story. All right, I'm going to pray for us. We're going to go into a time of response. I'm going to ask you guys to just pray. Let the Spirit of God speak to you in this time. We're going to share communion in a moment. But let me pray for us first. Father, I thank you that, um, that you love us. Even though often our hearts are filled with pride, you are a humble God who's not offended by our offense. You're not put off by our rebellion. You are not thwarted by our plans to reject you. You instead work for our good. You are a God who redeems and restores. And we thank you that you have broken into this world, that you were born behind enemy lines, that you might ultimately provide victory through defeat deliverance through surrender that you might through the very rejection of your people work the redemption of your people we thank you that the offer is extended to us freely to receive the benefit of the coming king by simply believing in his name and resting in his work Father I pray that you'll awaken each one of our hearts to the wonder and the beauty of this season You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.